On today's episode of the Zero to 100 podcast, I had the opportunity of speaking with Alexandra Laws. Uh, Alex is a high performance coach um, and has spent uh, over a decade in the United States as a trusted advisor to some pretty high profile athletes. Um, she has a very unique story and um, and just a wealth of, uh, of knowledge and experience. So um, have a listen and, uh, and I hope you enjoy it. Alex, welcome to the Zero to 100 podcast. Thanks uh, so much for jumping on. And uh, luckily we were able to sort of bypass all those tech issues just now. Um, how has your day been? Great, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Sam. Uh, thanks so much for jumping on. Um, so I've sort of, um, I've gone through like your website and everything and, and, and your LinkedIn profile and it's sort of hard to really know exactly what it is your business is currently doing, but it sounds incredibly interesting. So do you want to give us a bit of a um, insight into into exactly what your business does? Yeah, I guess, um, I mean, I support people to develop performance goals and strategies um, so that they can, you know, be the best at what they need to do, whether it's breaking a world record, running a large or small corporation or just dealing with day-to-day, trying to keep up. So I've been in the performance area for 25 years. Yeah, awesome. Um, so, what sort of um, what sort of sparked your whole kind of passion for this um, this sort of niche market? Well, I mean, I, I was, I've been an, I was an athlete when I was younger, and I was always looking at more efficient ways to you know get results. So, I think it's just part of my DNA now, so to speak. And then I went from my career to helping other people's sporting careers to now taking that information into corporate. And it's just been a big part of my whole performance strategies is what's the the next best thing? Um, how can we do it faster and efficiently? And I guess I've been biohacking for ages actually, but now they've they've termed it, which is just short and effective ways to get the best results possible or the biggest bang for your buck, as I say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so you you were a triathlete back in the day, is that correct? Yeah, correct. Awesome. Um, that's that's like. Just a, it just seems like such a grueling, grueling sport. Um, what sort of things were you implementing um, back then to to optimize your performance? Um, gosh, we didn't have much back then. I mean, it was all like have a little bit of endura. Um, I did the Masashi amino acids, and um, it was mainly electrolytes. But gosh, compared to what they have now, it's it's a total game changer. I mean equipment to aerodynamics um i mean we were getting massages a couple of times a week at least which was good yep. and um we were actually um intermittent fasting not on purpose though <laughs> oh wow <laughs> yeah cause you get up super early and you don't feel like eating before you're going to do a two-hour session so you just go and do that session in a fasted state and yeah, you'll have yeah. like uh we i used to use exceed but um, even back then, um, this was in the mid '90s. We were heavily drug tested, heavily. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So I had to watch what we were taking. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what sort of what sort of things were what sort of substances were kind of banned back? Not banned, but like sort of yeah, banned back then. Was it has um, it changed much? Do you know or? Yeah, well, I think it definitely has changed a lot. I mean, we wouldn't take any cold medications. That was a big one. So if you got sick, you just had to write it out. Um, oh, because, wow. Yeah, yeah that, was, um, that was really hard. But Australia's always been on the forefront of drug testing. I mean, I, I had in-home drug testing in the mid-'90s, in-home at my house. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, but when we went to Europe, we uh, didn't find – it the same and they were doping all over the place and that was kind of hard so Australia's always had and it's been good but you know the rest of the world are not like that which makes it hard yeah definitely um you always want to compete on an even even playing field um what's what's that like when someone rocks up at your house and just says you know here's a cup (laughs) no they have to watch you (laughs) and they check they check the toilet to make sure there's no oh, bags in oh, the back. Yeah, so they take wow, the lid off wow. the toilet and they have to watch the urine come out of you. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I think That's I was good. 18. 
18 years of age. Yeah. And when they notify you, you have 24 hours to produce a sample. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So they let you know, which was by phone back in those days because there was no email. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you'd arrange a time and that was it. Yeah. Jeez, that's fairly invasive, isn't it? That's... Yeah. That's why I'm really <laughs> interested to see where this Jack test, uh, positive test from swimming goes because um, I know she's been under strict. I just know the protocol she's been under with Australian swimming and it just doesn't seem to add up to me. Um, it just doesn't seem to add up. So I'm very interested to see what the investigation is going to bring out about that. Yeah, that will be that will be interesting because, um, yeah, I mean, if if it turns out that, um, yeah, like, like she's positive, how is that even kind of, yeah, possible? Um, you know... Yeah. Aussies in general um, aren't deemed drug cheaters because we have such strict protocols that have been in place for a very, very long time. So if you want to get in the system and get up to the international ranks of, of those sports, you've been heavily drug tested, like, all the time. So there's really no room for you to even try something. And I do believe, I actually do believe it that she's taken something unknowingly that, I saw that she didn't even she wasn't even questioning the testing. Um, so I mean, hey, after watching that doc documentary um, in Karis, anything's possible. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is wow. That that yeah, I've seen that, and that is just that story is just barely mm. believable, isn't it? That's that's incredible. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's crazy. I, I actually. Um, uh, I won't I won't say who said it, but someone um, told me that the reason like the Russians and and some of the Chinese uh, dope is because they they honestly believe that the Australians and the Americans in other countries can't perform the way they do without doping, but they truly believe that we're we're doping as well. <laughs> that oh, makes really? sense. So it's yeah, um, they came from a yeah fairly informed. Um, yeah, person, but yeah, who knows? Who knows that the opinion may have changed nowadays. That's interesting. I've ne I, I've been around a lot of it for a long time, and I've never heard that. Yeah, okay. Um, I always got the opinion that, um, well, back in the day, America and Australia had far superior training regimens and sports science to to help the athletes that they couldn't keep up, so they had to cheat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They really, really did. And obviously, we've fallen behind, which, you know, we may touch on that in this chat, we'll see. But America's just kept soaring ahead with still producing some of the best athletes in the world in those top sports. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So, um, do you want to tell us about the, the time you spent over in Los Angeles and perhaps um, – yeah, you can kind of compare the the difference between how how they are training in the states as opposed to uh, back here in Australia. Yeah, well, so I spent 15 years in San Diego first, um, finishing off my triathlon career, and then I moved up and to LA, and some athletes moved me up there, and um, that's when kind of the recession hit, and LA is pretty recession proof actually, and. Um, so I spent eight years there. And just in general, there was no difference really between San Diego and L.A. Um, they're always trying to find the next edge. And so they're very interested in people who are practising um, protocols that are on the fringe that are obviously not breaking any of the rules because, you know, I was in sports where they were drug tested with tennis and stuff like that. So I still, you know, had to adhere to those rules, which I've always had because I've come from the background I've come and I'm, I'm not interested in cheating anyways. Um, and um, they were always seeking it out, whereas here it's they've got very sports science-y and it's taken the human element out. And I think we're just over-measuring everything now um, instead of educating the athlete. I've always been about educating the athlete first. And the person, whether, as I said, whether you're breaking a world record or running a corporation or whatever, 
the more you can empower an individual, the better they're going to be able to perform to their best potential. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's quite shockingly different um, from America to here. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why we're falling behind. Like, you know, uh, the science has a place, it, you know, and I and I'm I love science, but I think it's to the part point where when it when you're coaching someone, there's some natural abilities coaches have. Like back in the day, when Australia was killing it and swimming in the 80s, the Laurie Lawrences and all those amazing coaches, none of them had any coaching degrees or qualifications because you couldn't teach what why they were so good. You know, mm. I think the system now has flushed all those people out that you have to have the piece of paper in order to coach a team or an athlete and. I think we have unfortunately lost a generation of amazingly talented coaches. Um, yes. So yeah. do you think that's sort of taking the, um, like the, well, almost not, I don't want to say stunting the growth, but, but maybe inhibiting the growth of, of our coaches too nowadays because they're, they're in this system? Yeah, and, and it is. And, and what's happened is what stunted the growth is we now have a system that's not trying to well I, th I think they probably are trying but they're not focused on the output as much as the process in between whereas America's focused on the output all they give a crap about is are you getting results are you getting results and that's what kept me employed for 20 years over there I never had to market myself or anything um it's just because I got the results and I did it ethically Whereas here it's just, oh, you don't have this piece of paper or you haven't done this course. And I'm like, how is that going to change how I'm going to get the results with my experience? It's just really interesting. And I see a lot of really young people that are straight out of school getting de with degrees, you know, getting those jobs. And unfortunately, it's a field where experience comes before the piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do you how, how much were you sort of able to um, like scale your business just based on on um, on being in a different um, country? Like, I mean, yeah, I know you touched on um, you know you were just getting getting results. So, like, where did that lead you? Like, just um, yeah, like because you were in in that in Los Angeles, how how far did that sort of that sort of take you? Working with the top people um, from the entertainment industry to the sporting industry, I had people travel to work with me or fly me around the world based on because I someone told them that she's the person who gets results, and that was it. That was it. And that's why social media is hard yeah. for me because I don't really talk about what I do. Um, I let mm. I let my work do the talking. And, yeah. Um, now you've got a lot of people in the space talking about a lot of stuff, and I'm like, well, what are you actually doing? And, you know, and it cracks me up. The media are putting labels on certain people. Oh, they're, they're an international fitness guru. And I'm like, based on what? <laughs> yeah. Based on what? Like, it's crazy, and I've, I've seen that a bit. They haven't done anything. Oh, yeah, they, I mean, other than probably a good PR campaign, but, like, what have you actually done? What's your output been? What have you influenced? Yeah, you know, yeah. What are your results on the world stage? Have you done it across a bunch of different sports? Then I'll call you a guru. And the ones that yeah. call, the ones that are gurus don't call themselves gurus either. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, they're more modest than that. Um, yeah. I, I, I really hate that term, uh, influencer, because um, you know it's just what like what are you actually influencing? You know. Um, you know, and what sort of message are you spreading? And, and yeah. I, I just, yeah, I, I really don't, yeah, I hate when that, that term gets thrown around personally. Um, but, um, why, but yeah. Why, Sam, why are you influencing? Oh, for your own personal gain. Well, that's a bit shallow, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, at the core of anything, you know, with business and whatever, it has to be, has to be customer and product focused, yeah. doesn't it? Like it's not, it has to, it has to be external, not, not an internal um yeah ego right i suppose um so yeah like word of mouth is always is always the the best though isn't it like the, the best form of form of marketing and and um and advertising and promoting yourself yeah. um 
Yeah. So what? Um, so can we talk about some of the, the high profile athletes you worked with over there, or, or is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hush um, hush, or yeah. No, 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 it's not, it's not hush hush. Um, I guess I'm, re- I'm really interested to, to hear about some of these some of these people. Like I know, like I went through your LinkedIn profile, and it just yeah, I'm pretty yeah, pretty pretty uh, interested to hear some of the stories. Yeah, I mean, I get um in tennis, I worked with Isilviama and kept her injury free for five years. Took her to number eight in the world in singles and number one in doubles. She won a bunch of Grand Slam titles in doubles. She broke, we broke a record of, and it still stands too, that she played in a tier one tournament, which is, um, you know, you've got all the grand slams and then you've got tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four. So tier one's a really hard level. Yeah. And it was out at Indian Wells in Palm Springs. And she made, she played in the, the semifinals of the singles and the doubles and the finals of the singles and the doubles all in one day and won them all. In one day. In one day. Wow. <laughs> um, sometimes that they schedule, and in order for because of the TV rights, um, we, she had to do it. And she was, I had her condition so well, she was able to do it and she won it. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So, um, yeah. and then, um, yeah, yeah so a bunch of tennis players. Um, she was my biggest one. I worked a lot um, in Japan and because of her. Worked with a Taiwanese girl who I uh, – sorry, uh, a Thai girl from Thailand. Got her to – from 40s uh, – uh, I got her from uh, – in the 80s to, like, 36 in the world. Yeah. And I worked with a bunch of Americans, um, male and female. Um, I actually worked with Lindsay Davenport right in the early early stages, right when I was finishing my triathlon career, and she was kind of in the hundreds at that time before, you know. And yeah. – um, so I was on the tennis circuit for a couple of years, kept them all injury-free while I was working with them, did a lot of travel with that. And I'd have to say then um, Danny Way was my next big one, breaking, working with him on all his world record jumps. Um, that was just – I probably learned – I learned a lot from I, um, but I learned a lot with him as well. I mean, he's just an anomaly, obviously. And – you know, still to the day, he's training heavily. But um, to see the abuse that his body <laughs> dealt with, <laughs> just get up there and go, it's like, oh, my gosh, it, it makes AFL players look like a walk in the park. I mean, I mean, he's dropping from 20 feet in the air and <laughs> going splat. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I then started working with all of them. I mean, all of them started working with me, and that was not – it's kind of funny because I wasn't there's, – there's a bit of a groupy mentality with the action sports and I wasn't interested in it, but I think it's why the boys employed me for years and years and years because I didn't want to hang out with them. I just wanted to help them perform. So I think it ended up being a, a really good relationship. So I worked with them on and off. I mean, I'd ask them, hey, can I go and work with the tennis players for a while? And so I just kind of would do it between seasons and – I needed a bit of a change. I enjoyed the tennis circuit. Um, but the the action sports was very, very um, challenging. And then I worked with a few of the BMX riders, the snowboarders, um, and these guys are doing things that the human body's never done before. So that was really exciting. But one of the, I guess, influences that I had, which I didn't realise at the time, is back in the early days it was very taboo for a skateboarder to do any type of conditioning work. So they would all oh. have me swear to secrecy that I wouldn't tell anyone. They would, <laughs> yeah, I swear to God. And I said, I'm so not interested, firstly, of telling anyone. And so for a good, I'd say, 10 years, um, they, and they, they were just like, you, you know, you can't say anything. And then <laughs> now it's so... Um, accepted that you need to actually condition yourself now on skateboarding in order to have a career beyond five years because it's so abusive on the body. Yeah. And so I feel like I had a strong um, influence on that and I passed my whole clientele off to a couple of people in LA that um, I really enjoyed working with and, I mean, it's just amazing what I handed them. But now it's accepted and that's when – 
you know, I had a friend who's, uh, oh, I have a friend. She's one of the senior reporters for ESPN, and and she knew about it. She goes, I want to write an article on this. And I said, don't let me. And then once they did, um, she got me a lot of press, but then some of them started paying me exclusive, like, you know, Paul Rodriguez, the most talented athlete I've ever worked with in my life, ridiculously talented. Um, he could do anything off both sides, like he could do switch and goofy. And yep. just on a physical level, like I had to really stretch the envelope in to increase the demand on his system in, in the gym yeah. beyond what he was doing out there um, when he was skating. And um, he was just – he was amazing to work with. I really enjoyed it. We worked all the way up until I decided I was going to move back. Um and but he's like you can't work with any other street skaters. I'm going to pay you exclusively. And wow. Yeah, and that's what he did. But he he would let some of his he owned um, a skateboard company, so he'd have riders for his team, and he had a clothing company. And um, he said, I oh, know you can ride with those guys, but you're not going to. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> so you these guys, but and he had to do the introduction. So yeah, okay. that's the level it got to. Did um yeah, did you get any would, tips from these guys? Tips in what way? Uh, like uh, about skateboarding? <laughs> well, I, I, I wasn't that interested. Um, yeah. I mean, still don't know. I haven't break down the movement pattern, but to remember the names and everything was and, – and that's where I worked. I mean, I remember someone saying something about a sport. Oh, you've never worked in that the sport. And I'm like, well, I'm not the coach. That's not my position. I'm a movement specialist with these guys, and I prevent injuries. So I don't need to know how the game's played. I just need to watch their their movement. That's it, and understand the demand on their system. And it's the same thing with tennis. I knew nothing about tennis. And then I've got the coaches um, sitting next to me saying, "Oh my gosh, because you've done this, she's able to set up better for this forehand and do that." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, that's cool." Um, and then there's a problem with the serve, and I'm like, "Okay, it's because of this, this, and this is not working." You know? Mm. So. Um, yeah, and I worked with a baseball player, left-handed pitcher. That was really fascinating. Six foot eight, six foot eight. Oh wow! <laughs> well, he wanted he was talent. He he could he wanted to make the draft, but he had a back injury and he couldn't even lunge off the mound. And oh. uh, that was just I like learning about all the different sports. They all have different rules and regulations, which is kind of cool. Um, obviously, different demands on their bodies. And um, he ended up getting drafted to the A's. And get a, he had a full ride scholarship at Stanford, and then got drafted to the A's, which was great. Left-handed pitcher at 94 miles an hour. That's six foot. Yeah, yeah. So that was fun. And then a few Olympian athletes that I knew in triathlons, and I had another one in shot put. Um, okay. And um, both I think. Yeah. 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 So can. Can we can we just talk about like the the mindset sort of stuff with um yeah. like like Danny Ray jumping over the Great Wall of China like that's that's a quite a big jump you know um what what like what what do you sort of how do you prepare for that mentally so so here and I actually use this example of Danny when I do keynote talks because it, it's just such a great story um Danny's not someone I have to work with on the mental <laughs> obviously. Okay with the idea that he's going to jump the Great Wall of China on a skateboard. Um, so just in that, that in itself, he's mentally, he, he's so far ahead mentally um, in a lot of ways. The biggest thing with him was is getting him to slow down because every time they miss, which can be for so many very, very variabilities, right, This and they can't land properly, they really hammer their bodies. So my whole thing with him was slowing him down so he could try and make each run because the more runs he doesn't make, the more it beats his body up, right? And you can see it on his movie Waiting for Lightning, and I'm actually in the movie, great movie. Actually, it used to be, it was on Netflix in America and it's not here. And he just keeps going. He's got a slight concussion at X Games. He keeps going and going. I'm like, buddy, and I... I could tell he was concussed, and the doctor's like, you've got to stop him. I'm like, there's no stopping this guy, I'm telling you. <laughs> stopping him. And he goes out and he ends up 
what we thought had the gold medal run, but they gave him the silver, which that crushed him more than the actual physical. Yeah. Yeah. He, I, I just loved working with him. He'd be like, hey, this is what's going on. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to have this amount of G-force through my body from here. I need to put on 30, um, 30 pounds in muscle mass to handle the abuse, but I need to be still flexible. I need this, this, and this. Can you devise training? And then we've got to do nutrition and recovery and blah, 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 blah. And that's how we work. Um, so he was obviously super exciting um, to work with on, on, on that regard. But mentally, I didn't have to work much with him mentally at all. So the others I did. Yeah, okay. Everyone's I guess, yeah, if, if you if you want to undertake such a big thing, you, you probably have to be quite mentally adept anyway, don't you? That's. Um... But Sugiyama was naturally strong mentally anyways, um, but my other tennis players needed probably a little bit more work on that area. So everyone's very different. Um, so you've yeah. got to work on, well, what's going to give their biggest bang for their buck? Where, where do we need to work on? And, um, and always try and work on the weakness on an athlete also, so... Uh, with, with Danny, it was just keeping him together. Yeah, you know? okay. <laughs> Death was yeah. an option. Great wall jump. Death was an option. Yeah. So, like, what, um, like, physically, how did, how do you replicate that to train for it? Well, that's what's so hard about it. It's not like you can set up a ramp in your somewhere with a great wall and simulate it. You can't. Um, I mean, he had a mega ramp out in the desert built. To practice but he did not he couldn't practice until he got there yeah and then wow. when he, when he got there the the ramp builders um who he's very close to he have has to be have to work all the geometry out to be able to get the speed in order to clear the wall and he went and did his first test run which the the scaffolding of the of the rolling ramp was moving in the wind. It was that high. Mm. <laughs> I kid you not. And <laughs> he flies over, and as you fly over the the wall, it's called what? There's, it, it's a transition where the ramp starts going down, so you transition. You don't want it flat because you don't want to land on something flat from that height, right? You'll go splat, right? So mm. they all land on a decline right so the inertia of the speed of which they've created to to go over the the gap so to speak can get dispersed from the decline in the ramp right mm. the transition was too long and he hit flat and tore a ligament off his ankle on practice run oh yeah and so he had to get his ankle shot up with lidocaine that day. He was pretty upset because the next day he had to do it and his ankle was the size of a, of a softball and he had to get up there and he did it with a busted ankle. So my whole thing, <laughs> like in the throes of adversity, because he had prepared so well, and I call it building neural reserve, right, your reserve is having energy left over after meeting your physical, mental, and emotional demands of the day, competition, event, whatever it is. He mm -hmm. was able to still pull it off, even with a torn ligament off his ankle. So yeah, that's why, wow. well, even if something goes wrong, you can still execute. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Can can we um, elaborate a bit on the, the on the neural reserve? Yeah, yeah, it's just a term that I've come up with. I talk about it in my in my keynote, and so I'm taking that now into corporate and everything. Well, you know, a lot of people because because stress levels are super high, everything's moving super fast because of technology. Um, just to keep up is really hard now. Um, and people are absolutely spent. Um, mental health is at an all time high. And um, I want to teach people how to keep up and increase their neural reserve so that they can actually perform, whether it's not just at work, but so when you come home that, you know, you don't kick the cat, shout at the spouse and slump on the couch with a bottle of wine. You know, you actually have energy left over at the end of the day to then, you know, do the other part of your life, which is, you know, it's supposed to be really important for people, you know. So, again, it's pulling that human element, and I see a similar thing even with corporate is, you know, we're treating people like robots, and it's the same thing in a lot of the sports. It's like robots instead of the human element, 
And you just don't get much out of people when you don't address the human element. So that's kind of what my new work is about right now. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, like I think just the whole sort of landscape of our of our work environment is changing, and um, and you know it almost feels you know you, you get settled into one kind of thing, and then then it changes, and then you have you know settle into that, and then it changes again, and you're just constantly sort of mentally on the fly trying to yeah, as you say, keep up. Um, mm. What sort of strategies do you implement to to boost that neural reserve? Um, getting completely uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. Yeah. One of my biggest things, and I'm about to write an article on it, is the more uncomfortable we get, the more exponentially our resistance grows and our resilience. Sorry, our resilience, mm. resistance. The more exponentially our resilience grows, right? We become too comfortable, right? So the wind just has to change with some people and they fall in an absolute heap and they can't get out of it. Mm. Right? So getting uncomfortable, you know, having a cold shower every morning. Do I have a cold shower because I enjoy it? Absolutely not. But it has so many benefits, gazillion benefits. Fasting, I fasted all day yesterday. You know, do I like going without food? No, I don't. But, it, you know, so these, these certain, this is where, you know, the term hacks are coming in now, biohacks. Um, and I guess I've always done it, but it's like you go and do things that, are going to increase your performance, but it's going to also make you completely uncomfortable and increase your resilience. And if you look at athletes, athletes are always torturing themselves. That's why a lot of them go into business really well after their careers because they understand that their resilience is so huge. Mm. They know how to be uncomfortable. And people are getting too comfortable, you know, even, even temperature-wise, oh, it's too cold, it's too hot. I'm sitting here with Ugg boots and a puffer jacket on because I know it's cold today, but it's like I'll put the heat on when my son comes home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't expect my four-year-old to deal with heavy resilience. He has a little bit. He has cold showers, by the way, which is hilarious. Does he? Wants yeah, he loves it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's great, um, actually. I mean, there's so many benefits of it. But, um, you know, doing some sort of daily mindfulness practice, whether you like it or not, you just do it, you know. There's no excuses right? Um, breath work is really good for the mind. So there's um, a ton of different breaths that you can do. I like breath of fire. I'm doing the 478 breath, which is probably one of the most documented ones with the um, yogis that's been done for ages. Andrew Wiles, big on that, Dr. Andrew Weil. Um, he's awesome. Okay. Um, you know, there's just so – like. Trying to get uncomfortable, like go into the things that you're afraid of, you know, tackle them head on. Don't run away from them. Don't be what I, what I heard a yoga teacher say the other day. Don't be a runner. <laughs> Don't run away uh, from you. Deal with them. Try and figure out what it is you need to resolve in that because it will make you a better person. And, you know, I'm seeing people just, as I said, the wind changes, they don't feel good, and they go down for months and months and months. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, like, why have you given up on yourself? And it's because yeah. their resilience is so low. Their resilience is so low. And they're not, and this is where we have to do some sort of daily practice, like throughout the day, of challenging ourselves. You know, and that's when, you know, it's just it just helps you just keep up. So when the shit does hit the fan, you're able to navigate through it pretty calmly and effectively. Yeah. So, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, I totally agree with, with everything you've said. Um, I, 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 I've try, I, I try and do cold showers, but I just, I'm, I'm not quite there. Yet. I do like a, like a cold rinse at the end. That's, that's as far as I've got so far. I'm, I'm not quite there. But I have, um, I have done a bit of fasting and, um, and found, um, at first I really hate it. Like I. I did um like a well, I do like long bouts of like sixteen and eight, so I'll do like a couple of weeks where I'll do like yeah. sixteen and eight fast, and I just find like the first you know maybe four or five days you, you just it's it's tough, but then as you adapt to it, you just feel different, don't you? Like you just have more more clarity, yeah. like you just feel your systems feel like they're they're rejuvenated. Is that what you find with fasting? 
Yeah, well, firstly, before you start doing anything beyond 24 hours, you've got to do the 16-8. You've got to get your body fat adapted first, right? So I do 16 and 8 practically every day, and I have been doing it for, for over years actually now. And then I try once a month to do a 24-hour, right, um, or a 20. I normally go about 20 hours, Um and I did that yesterday and I was actually totally fine. You know, I still had black coffee. And then once a quarter, right, so when the seasons change, I do a three-day. Uh, actually, I did four days. Um, around April I did I did one. Right right before it gets cold, I do, um, yeah, so once a quarter I'll do around three to four days. And I haven't done any. And it's just water, obviously water, tons of electrolytes. Um and you do, you start feeling amazing. Actually, I broke mine because I had to facilitate something pretty big the next day and I was talking to a friend in America and he said, um, he said, you sound like you're high as a kite. And I said, oh, I'm like day three on a fast. And he said, Alex, you're going to have to ground yourself um, for tomorrow, otherwise you're going to go in and blow everyone out of the water because <laughs> you just like, you've got to bring yourself back down. I'm like oh, shit, I'm doing so well with this at the moment. And it, mm-hmm. and it's one of the best ones I had had. And I was like, he's right. So I waited until the next morning and I ate something to ground myself so I could um, be a little bit more subdued while I had to facilitate. Mm-hmm. The session wasn't about me. It was just to help facilitate and flush out some problems with this organisation. And <laughs> so you do you feel very euphoric. This episode is brought to you by my business, Athletex Human Performance. We offer online fitness, running and strength and conditioning programs, fully structured, personalized and periodized to meet your specific needs. You can find us on Instagram at Athletex Human Performance or search us on Facebook. The links will also be in the bio. So check them out and please enjoy this podcast what's uh sort of taking a step back what what sort of um what's the role where you feel you've had sort of the most impact um like you know as in um you know even for you like personally what what one do you feel has had the most sort of impact you know on your career i would have to say Watching the change in the skateboarding, uh, the skate, you know, the skateboarding culture, and being being a big part of implementing how to condition themselves and look after their bodies, you know, so they can skateboard better. And I, I was really quite pivotal in that. And but I think it happened organically as well. But I was the first person to, you know work with these guys and um and i i've worked with just about every one of them so i think that probably has had the biggest impact that one there yeah. um, involved in that and so but you know with a sport that was really reluctant towards that type of training and um then eventually 15 20 years later seeing it completely shift so that was kind of cool being involved in that i would say yeah yeah, that would be a very rewarding experience, I imagine. Yeah. Um, I think, um, like, kind of, sorry, it's gone off topic a bit, but I think golf has sort of gone through a similar kind of transition in recent years too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I watched know, golf because, you know, being in San Diego, it's a massive golfing mecca. And I worked with a lot of recreational golfers because I was really close to one of the biggest resorts um, in San Diego. And, um Golf was um, golf was great, but at that time a lot of people were buying to get into that space. So um, yeah, so that was interesting. And I'd have to say my involvement on the tennis circuit, even though it was short, it was at a time where you know I when I was observing the tennis circuit um, when Steffi Graf and Martina Navratilova were going head to head, and I remember seeing both of them at I think the Australian Open, and I just I was just so impressed at how fit they were looking. 
And they definitely paved the path to shift women into starting to work out more. And when I was on the tennis circuit, was pretty much mainly known like only only the you know the top ten could afford to bring someone out because it's quite costly. You've got to pay for airfares, accommodation, per diems, and then the fee on top it ends up being really really expensive. And and then because I was getting the results, a lot of these other players that were in the top fifty or even like maybe just inside the top one hundred, I was working with not as much as I was working with Sugiyama because of their cost, but enough to enable them to make some really significant shifts in their conditioning to keep them injury-free. So, like, when there were the tournaments that were all in California, they would stop in and see me and, um, you know, so they wouldn't have to fly me out and all that. And so that was kind of really cool to see that. Now, most of the girls in the top 100 have someone with them. So, again, just seeing that shift is kind of cool. Yeah, for sure. Um yeah, that that's yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so like, is was has there been like a I know um, probably back home <clears throat> more so there's been a, a bit of a reluctance to to for teams to um, bring in an outside influence. Is yeah. it as is it as big in the states or is it mainly a an Australia thing? Um. I think it's more of an Australia thing. Um, they're very set in their ways. They're very like, let's just keep to the people we know. And to me, it's quite shallow thinking because you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm. And again, like as I've told you these stories about all these different people and sports that I worked in, I had nothing to do with them. I had no knowledge of the sports, but they knew I was able to get the output that they required. And that's all that mattered to them, you know. Mm. So as I said, I didn't know anything about tennis. I don't, I still don't know how to put a point together. It, it's not it's not my <laughs> wheelhouse. That was the coach's wheelhouse. Now, did I talk, you know, collaborate with the coach a lot? Absolutely. But it wasn't my area. Same thing with, you know, I don't know what a gnarly heel kick flip is. I still don't, <laughs> you know, in skateboarding. But, you know, that's not my place. So um, it's interesting. Um yeah, that, I don't know whether it's an Australia thing or an Adelaide thing either because you know, I'm not in Melbourne where, you know, there's more opportunities sporting-wise there. Um, I'm not quite sure, but I've had a lot of resistance here in Adelaide, a lot, um, to where I'm kind of over it and I'm moving on to corporate So because that's more aligned with my values and principles. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... And, you know, the other thing is I actually spoke to someone who um, at the AIS and the position that I qualify for, it actually didn't it didn't pay much. And I'm like, this is a part-time job, right? She goes, no, no, it's full-time. I'm like, oh, my God. And that's the other thing. There's, there's actually no money in sports here um, as well. So that's really, really difficult. You know, the athletes, the, the Australian athletes that are making millions of dollars aren't living in Australia full-time. They're living overseas. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so do, do you think, um, like, we're sort of, I mean, is, is that, like, is that like a sponsorship thing? Is it hard to for an athlete to, to find sponsorship or, like, is it just an exposure thing or yeah. is it I just simply to... because America is just so big and, like, this, yeah. it's just the media giant that, that it is, yeah. it just... It's so big. I mean, I did work with some Australian skateboarders, by the way, and all their money came from the US, their sponsorship money from the US. So that's why they're over there, um, because then they have to fulfil the sponsorships, you know, requirements. You know, they come home to Australia, but, you know, there's the companies just can't afford to pay the athletes what the American companies can just based on numbers. Yeah. um, And then, you know, the only big sports here are, AFL and then rugby, cricket. There's not really a whole lot. And then with the women's sports, there's just no money. There's absolutely no money. So. Yeah. 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 Do, I mean, do you feel like that's starting to shift? or? Well, I, I've spoken to a few people. Back when in the 90s when I was representing Australia, I had everything taken care of. But 
you know, someone said, oh, that was a push for um, the Olympics because um, of the Olympics in Sydney for 2000. But I don't know. Um, a lot of the money shifted elsewhere. We used, we used to put more money into our athletes back in the 90s than we do now. So for somehow, for some reason, it's not going into our athletes. So that's why a lot of them are leaving. Yeah, okay. And going, you know, they figure, well, you know, at least I can pick who I want to work with and I'm going to make more money over there and they just create their own little high-performance team. Yeah. 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 That's um yeah, it's an interesting Yeah, I I don't get it. I mean um Yeah, I mean in a lot of cases like the the women's teams are outperforming the men's um they are know, in, in in athletics and and cycling as well and that sort of stuff like there's um Yeah, it's just it's a, it's a funny it's a funny business and I think it would be an incredibly tough being an athlete would be incredibly tough professional athlete um well as i said all our great you know steph gilmore surfing all of them none of them you know they come back here but all of their top training and their their, their high performance teams are all overseas you know yeah. so um i mean we, we've got i think genetically australia's got just a really good athletic pool and I've seen a lot of them, you know, over the years. I mean, look at Ash Barty at the moment. I just love her. She is just, yeah. I just, I just think, yeah, she's such a talented athlete. I mean, to go from cricket, um, go from tennis to cricket and back to tennis again, it's just unbelievable at this day and age where I think, you know, it really comes down to genetics, um, which is, by the way, I'll tell you something really interesting. I've just started um, diving into the whole genetics thing. And I'm now like a practitioner with Smart DNA, and I just had my I've had I've had four DNA tests done, but this one was comprehensive, and my my DNA is not very good for triathlons. Like I should oh. I, I should have stuck to tennis. Um, I have don't have good pathways for lactic acid production. I don't methylate well. I've got high inflammatory markers. I um, what else do I have? Um, I'm correcting a serotonin problem um, with a, with sleep, and sleep's so important for athletes to recover. So long distance training, like I was doing, was just shattering my adrenals. Um, I have B12 issues. Like anyway, it was, and I looked at it, and I was dealing with um, the doctor in in Melbourne, geneticist, and I said, Oh my gosh, if I was working with athletes now, this would be amazing information because you can really fine-tune your athletes programs based on this and when I looked at it I'm like oh my gosh this is now why I had all these problems when I was racing and now that I look at this triathlons wasn't the best sport for me but you know yeah. my mum said we tried you with everything else but that's all you wanted to keep doing was swimming and that so um, I'm more built for like tennis would have been much better for me something like that or basketball so yeah yeah, anyway, that's a very fascinating... And, you know, working with athletes will always be a passion of mine. I mean, bottom line is I just love helping people improve the performance of their life, you know, so of their lives, I should say. Um, that's why I do what I do. It's what wakes me up every day. Um, and this DNA part is really big. I'm about to do an article on it, and it's just a... a I call it a really good self-quantification device to take the guessing out of what supplements you need and what you don't need and how you should train and where you can actually improve. And I think the improvements you can make through this when you know what you're doing are pretty huge. Like they're really big. They turn the dial big time. And that's what I'm into is turning the dial the most we can. Yeah. I'd be very interested to, uh, to read that. Um, when um yeah that would yeah that would be really interesting i had a really good quote of that to to tell you but i've just i've just lost it um and anyone uh, can get, run a test through me i think they're around 365 dollars and the thing is you only do it once you don't have to do it multiple times because it's not going to change is it <laughs> no 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 um so no. it's once and um takes about a month and then, we, then i get the report back and then we kind of go through it and um, I've got quite a few um, in at the lab right now with some clients. So, um, yeah, it's exciting. 
it's my new geek area as i call it yeah cool it does sound very exciting yeah and and um i guess that is a situation where the the sports science is a, is a massive massive benefit isn't it where we can really delve into like your dna and find out exactly what makes you tick and yeah. even if you are if you are or not suited for a certain sport you know yeah yeah um yeah cool um what's your take on um like the women's footy um i'm just interested to hear hear your opinion um because i i just um I love the idea of women's footy because uh, just um, the whole, like the dyna- like AFL um, football, like the whole dynamic sort of um, demands of the sport, I think will help to really sort of develop some really strong female athletes in years to come. So like as a, as a young junior, like girl playing footy, they're going to develop so many new um you know, skills and, and things like that to, to take into other sports. Do you do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, so obviously since I've been back, I've watched the launch of it all and I actually was talking to one of the clubs about, because I've worked with female athletes and um, I do believe you need females in the high-performance area to be working with females because there's a whole menstrual cycle that you have to deal with and unfortunately men don't really understand that. And there's only a, there was only one coach on the tennis circuit that, and he came from a medical, well, he came from a medical family, so he, his thinking was very lateral, which was great, that I could actually discuss that with. Um, and so with that said, they weren't that interested, but I love women's football, but it is probably the hardest sport on the female body. And if you don't understand the implications of the menstrual cycle, the injuries are going to be rife. Um, and especially at a stage where you've got prepubescent girls um, at very vulnerable stages, it's it has to be dealt with properly. And I know there's a lot of talk, and I've spoken to Remit University, I've spoken to quite a few people because I've got a lot of information on this, um, and I just want to see the athletes protected, but I'm not... I have not seen um, the clubs really that interested. They feel that their their male-dominated high-performance team can take care of it, and that is not true. Um, as I said, if you if you if you can tell me a a male high-performance coach who understands the female menstrual cycle and its implications on strength and conditioning and everything, then great. But I don't think there's one um, in Adelaide. I'm saying so. Um, yes. I think the game's great. I loved the grand final. I went to it. I took my son there. It was an incredible experience to see so many people, and the game was in, was amazing as well. Mm. But the ACL, ACL injuries, um, and as I said, I've given my information. I've even spoken to someone at West Coast Eagles. She was pretty interesting um, in what I had to say, but we have to start tracking it and I don't – I think that they're just – it's all very new and the whole sport's gone very quickly, which is great, but the risk factor's pretty high right now when they don't know how to deal with it. So, yeah. Yeah, I would yeah definitely agree with that. The um, it, it, Yeah, it, it is a dynamic game and, and, and um, you know, you, you will learn a lot from it. Um, but yeah, as you say, the the demands are, are incredible um, yeah. on the body, and if you're not not adapted to that, not adjusted to that, and especially what I've noticed too is a lot of um, uh, a lot of female athletes their um, their transition into the game is very rapid, so they may yes. have been at like a, a netball or a basketball or whatever, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're you're tall and somewhat coordinated, come and play at a semi elite level. <laughs> Of, yeah. of women's football and yeah. then it's sort of like I think what was huge for me was you know Erin Phillips is probably uh, she is the most conditioned female athlete out there and I watched her I was watching her when she did an ACL no one was on her no one like she just like and and I, I've got a lot of questions on and I tried to get it through to her, but, you know, it's probably not happen. And she is very well trained in the US too. So to me with her, it wasn't about the training that she was doing. It's about 
the cycle where she's at, what's going on with her body during different stages of the cycle, and does it complicate their training? 150% it does, but we need to figure out a system in order to deal with it because guess what? It ain't going away. Their menstrual cycles, it's not going to go away. <laughs> you know, it's going to happen every month, and there's different phases of it where different um, athletes are going to be affected. So I had some athletes that couldn't keep a tennis ball, couldn't serve a tennis ball in the court premenstrually and then I had others that were totally fine and then I you know everyone's very different and that's where I think it kind of there's not one thing with it that's the thing it's a very complicated system that there are a ton of variables and it's going to be different with each female so you can't get your cookie cutter let's do this strength and conditioning program for everyone today it's not going to work mm. um and I think that was that was a huge wake up that you got someone as conditioned as Erin and she still did the ACL so and she did yeah. it on a, she did it on a good leg too, apparently. On a good leg. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. I. Yeah. Yeah. I can't really comment on the menstrual cycle stuff, but that. Um. But I can imagine just the the yeah that total sort of um like hormonal sort of imbalance would have a huge huge effect yeah. on um on everything. Um, but this is yeah, also where I feel the DNA testing comes with all of that as well. Yeah. Yeah, There's sure. a huge component that I've now seen with these reports in that would flag certain girls um, as well. And, um, yeah, uh, I think see, – see, that's where we need to start using our science brains is for that, you know. Um, but, yeah. So, yeah, it's a very, definitely. It's a very loaded question. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully it gains a bit of traction and um... – and uh, and we start to see some more um, kind of knowledge implemented into that yeah. into that field. Um, mm. Yeah, that will be interesting to see. Um, so yeah, you, you touched on the on the corporate um, side of things um, and how it aligns with your values uh, a little bit more. Um, how do you how are you finding that your your previous experience in sports is now transitioning into that into that corporate structure? Um, well, I think it's helping me and it's probably my main point of difference compared to anyone else in the space is because just innately I know how to get results out of people and so I'm constantly, I just, I know where the gaps are for certain people once I get to, to know them and find out what they're, what they're trying to achieve and and I like the corporate space right now because they know they're in trouble. They know it's a, you know, um, it's just a battlefield and that they need to do something. So they're very open. And that's what I love about it. They're very open. And a lot of them, you know, I was talking to a big corporation the other day and they're doing a program right now. And, you know, it doesn't mean that program the program will probably help a couple of people, but it won't help all of them. So they need to keep flushing out lots of different programs to suffice all the different people with all the different issues but they I just like how open they are about it and they know the culture has to change as well that's a big part of what I'm getting involved in and I guess my my big um, interest at the moment is being a part of changing the corporate culture because it needs to change it needs to change and I think the high commission with the banking was a big wake-up call and now corporations know that it needs to change. And it's not just from a performance standpoint, it's from a culture and diversity standpoint as well. And I think we're on this awesome precipice right now going into this new area and that really excites me. And I'm having a lot of amazing conversations with people right now. Some collaborations are coming up that I'm going to be a part of. And um, that's really, I have to say, what, you know, is exciting me at the moment is all of that yeah yeah for sure um yeah like i think with the the, the corporate stuff like it feels like we we're talking about before you know the whole whole landscape the work environment is changing but kind of the way we do things is not so i guess you know like exactly. our work hours and things like that and the way we're you know stuck in an office and and you know all those sorts of things i mean i guess they are slowly changing in in some degree but i think mm. yeah it, it, a, a much bigger change is probably needed to, to catch up, I feel. Yeah, a massive. And um, I think a lot of people are dabbling in the area and I just feel 
with my experience across a lot of different sports. So I've learned, like with each sport I work with, I learned something different. And that's what was great. It's not like I've been stuck in one sport. And I think that gives you very tunnel vision when you're in one sector all the time. Um, and that's where I guess some of my frustrations being with the sports here is like you need to think outside the box in order mm. to solve the problem. Otherwise, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. <laughs> and so I think that diversity that I've had across all different sports and seeing all the different problems that they have and, and working with them and alongside them and that um, has given me the flexibility on how to address a lot of the issues in corporate. So I think that's kind of one of my big points of differences with that. And, you know, my whole thing is like, you know, uh, why leaders need to be, learn more about how athletes function. They have to now because it is a battlefield. And the fact that I've got that proven track record with the athletes, um, I seem to be getting a little bit of trust amongst the corporate community. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. So will that be like the future of all your business will sort of be within the corporate world now? I think so. I mean, as I said, I'll always keep a, a door open to consult. I'm, I'm never going to sports. I don't, I don't say never. I, I'm not interested right now on going into sports full time. One, the money's not there, but I would always be happy to consult and collaborate and help wherever I can because it's 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 my passion. But um, I think the bigger picture is definitely the corporate right now, and that's where I, I really want to go. I think there's more movement there. There's more openness, um, and I'm not seeing that in the sporting environment here. So that's why I kind of really – but if, you know, the right situation comes along and, and the right person, I, I definitely would give a little bit of energy to it for sure. Yeah, But I've done, awesome. I've done too much work on developing corporate programs right now. I've got – quite a few different um, different types of ones, but it's all, it's all around building your reserve. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, yeah, some, some really interesting um, really interesting stuff um, we've got going on there. And it is a huge space too, that, um, you know, that whole optimising your, your ability to, um, you know, function and, and deal with stress and everything. I think it is a massive um, step in the right direction for not just not just you know um, athletes or corporate, but you know anyone who's who's dealing with um, any sort of you know um, stress at home or anything like that. I mean, yeah. like like you said, the, the mental health problems are just you know skyrocketing at the moment. So I think it's uh, mm. yeah, it'd be it'd be really interesting to see where this is at in 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 the next few years. Yeah, I mean, my big part as well with corporate, as you said, is and I and I and I've got some pretty awesome conversations going with um, some right now. And it, it's like it has to carry over to the home life and the personal life, you know. And with that, it shows that, you know, you care about them as a human being, you know. They're not just there to churn out KPIs and all of that kind of stuff and uh, turn them into robots. And I think that's a big part of the problem is um, treating people like robots. And it's just like, no. Um, you don't get much out of people when you don't respect them on a human on a human level, you know. So mm. um, that's that's a big part. And I think that's where we've gone way off course as well. I've actually seen a big difference in that compared to the states. The states is definitely more on a different human element with, with that. It's it's been quite fascinating to see the differences on on where I feel why you know America's got its problems. Don't worry, and it knows it. <laughs> but it actually knows what the problems are um, as well. And um, I think for the most part, they're trying to do something about it. But on a corporate level, you know, they're not really governed by government on how they get their output done. And a lot of them are doing, you know, four-day work weeks and a lot of different things. And they're finding the outputs are increased. And, yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's awesome. Um, so where where can we find your work? Where can we get in contact with you? Um, probably through my website, <clears throat> which is just my name, alexandralaws.com. And it is just a shell at the moment, to be honest. I've been working so much at putting all these programs together and, and obviously on LinkedIn as well, um, you can find me. Um, I 
yeah, I've just been putting all my energy on that. So the website's just been a show. I actually had a really lovely website, um, Side Story. And before I left the States and I'd paid all this money to have it done, I um, called up, and I don't mind saying GoDaddy, um, and I said, just want to make sure that everything's taken care of for the next two years because I've got this huge move going. I'm not going to be paying attention to anything. I want to let this other old website go that I don't use, da 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 And I get here, and I think about a month or two after, someone's like, oh, can I check your website out? And I said, yep, yep, yep. And they go, oh, it doesn't exist. I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't exist? And so I looked up, called GoDaddy, and they somehow cancelled my main website instead of this other one, and it was unretrievable. I lost everything. It was one of the most painful experiences because here I was starting out again, and my identity, which was, you know, with my business, had completely been lost, of which I'd just spent an enormous amount of money. Um, GoDaddy didn't seem to give a crap, and... um, so I built that shell myself just to, you know, a little bit of a profile, contact, this, that, and the other. So, um, yeah. So, yes, I lost a lot of money on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, tech issues, eh? <laughs> yeah, but it will, it will, I'll get it up and running again. But, um, yeah, so um, as I said, I've been working on developing programs and getting work and, and implementing it, it's taken up all my time. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks so much for the um, for the chat, Alex. That was um, you're yeah, you're um, a wealth of experience and uh, and knowledge, and that was uh, yeah, very very interesting to to hear from you. Um, yeah, thanks Thank so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it, and all the best to you as well. And um, I look forward to seeing this podcast grow and develop. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Onwards and upwards, I hope. <laughs> yes, it will. All right. Thanks. Okay. All the best, Sam. Take care. Thanks, Alex. Bye. Well, that was my chat with Alexandra Laws. I really hope you enjoyed it and found it as insightful as I certainly did. Um, just a, a, like I said, just a wealth of knowledge and experience there um, from Alex. Uh, if you would like to support this podcast, uh, if you enjoyed the podcast and you love working out and you love supplements, um, I have an affiliate link with bodybuilding.com. So that is in the description for this podcast. Um, it just means a small percentage of your sale goes towards supporting this podcast. Um, it doesn't cost you anything extra. It's um, it's just a small percentage from your from your sales. So if um, if you're shopping for your supplements, just keep that in mind. Um, have an awesome day, guys! And as always, really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast. And uh, and I really hope you're enjoying it. Catch you next time.